Hey there, Radiant Souls. It's your host, Gina Kunadian, bursting with excitement to welcome you back to season two of the Shine Within podcast. You've been with me through our incredible first season, and now it's time to crank up the intensity. You know me, your energetic cheerleader, a mom of three fabulous boys, an empowering certified massage therapist, and the game-changing alcohol-free sobriety coach. With my trademark enthusiasm, I'm here to uplift more motivated women to break free from the chains of alcohol dependency. And guess what? We're still defining the norms with our unique non-traditional approach. Get ready to supercharge your transformation as I bring you an all-new lineup of awe-inspiring guests this season. They're the powerhousers in the realms of mindset, health, and spirituality. And they're all set up to equip you with potent tips and tools. We're talking about crafting unyielding confidence, honing laser-focused clarity, and infusing your life with exhilarating energy. This season, our mission is to ignite your creative potential to even greater heights, helping you to manifest the life of your dreams, all while living vibrantly, alcohol-free. So buckle up as we journey deeper into the realm of self-discovery, awakening the inner magnificence that's ready to burst forth. Season 2 of Shine Within is about to take you to new horizons. Get ready to experience your true power and unleash your brilliance. So if you are ready to shine even brighter, welcome. Hey, lovely listeners. If you're finding value in what you're hearing today, make sure to head over to the show notes. Not only will you find more details on today's topic, but you'll also get an exclusive invitation to join my free Facebook group, Awakened Souls. This community is perfect for women who are either sober curious or currently journeying through recovery. Being part of Awakened Souls offers a supportive environment where you can connect with like-minded women, all working towards an alcohol-free lifestyle. Plus, there are special free gifts waiting for you inside the show notes, curated specifically to empower and assist you on your journey. If you're loving the content, I'd be also so grateful if you take a moment to rate this podcast. Your feedback helps me continue bringing you the conversations and insights you love. Let's keep the momentum going. And remember, you're not alone on this journey. I am here for you every step of the way. Welcome back to the Shine Within podcast. Today, we welcome Morgan Adams. She is a transformative, holistic sleep coach who empowers women to conquer their battle with sleepless nights without reliance on sleep medications. With her powerful sleep toolkit, Morgan not only ensures that women experience a profound enhancement in their sleep quality, but she also guides them in rekindling their relationship with sleep, paving the way for less stressful and more fulfilling days. Having struggled with insomnia and dependency on prescription sleeping pills for almost a decade, Morgan intimately understands the profound impact sleep has on one's quality of life. Morgan's resilience shines bright as a two-time breast cancer survivor. This experience fueled her advocacy for a lifestyle rooted in disease prevention. Her wisdom and guidance extend far beyond just sleep as she champions holistic well-being in all aspects of life. Join us as we explore her unique sleep toolkit and the essential role of sleep in our overall well-being. Whether you're struggling with sleep issues or seeking to enhance your sleep quality, Morgan's insights are sure to enlighten and inspire. Let's get ready to unlock the secrets to a better night's rest with Morgan Adams. Thank you so much, Morgan, for joining me. I'm so excited to talk about sleep because for me, sleep is medicine. <laughs> that is my medicine. If I'm sick with my family, like, let's go to bed. <laughs> that yes. is the most important, right? <laughs> yes. Sleep is medicine. I'm right there with you on that one, Gina. 
the best medicine I've ever found. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Because literally we just had COVID not that long ago. I know I was sick before we were supposed to meet once before and that was like food poisoning. I had eaten some lettuce and I slept literally all day, 24 hours. I never slept 24 hours in my life before. And then we recently got COVID, my husband and I, and then one of my stepson. And then my stepson was better, but of course we were sick and we were just literally on the couch, like zombies, like we couldn't move. We couldn't do anything. So I was like pulling some sound frequency music on <laughs> and I was just like, oh, please help me. I don't feel good. <laughs> but uh, I would love for you just to go ahead. We're going to start off with talking about um, sleep myths. <laughs> what are some most of the, what are some common sleep myths that people have that you can actually go ahead and share? Yeah, well, there, there are a couple main ones that I think um, permeate a, a lot. So the, the biggest one that I hear about is I must get eight hours of sleep. So the National Sleep Foundation recommends adults 18 to 64 get seven to nine hours of sleep a night. However, when you look in the fine print of their recommendations, you will see that they say six to 10 hours may be appropriate for some people. So that's quite a bit of latitude. So what I like to share with people is that, you know, you need to really find your, what I call your sleep sweet spot, really find the amount of sleep that is conducive for you. And it may be eight, it may be seven, it may be six and a half, but it's, it's not necessarily always eight for the same person. And the thing that gets us into trouble about that, quite honestly, is that when people, so the message honestly is meant to be shared for people as a public service announcement. So to really encourage people who are burning the candle at both ends to, to maybe do away with five hours a night, or maybe to reconsider their sleep habits, which is, which is fine. No problem with that. But who ends up hearing these messages are mostly the people who have insomnia. And those people are really giving their full effort to getting sleep but are struggling and may not be reaching that seven to eight hours. Quite often they do, but sometimes they're not. And they start to panic and think they're broken or there's something wrong with them. And what can end up happening is the more pressure you put on yourself to sleep eight hours, if you have insomnia, the more it could backfire and potentially make your sleep worse because you're so anxious. So bottom line is, sleep is like a shoe. It's like sleep numbers are like a shoe size. So, or a calorie need, we all have our own individual ones and it's not going to be cut and dried eight hours for everybody. So, right. yeah, that's, yeah. that makes total sense because my husband is as oh, I, he was at a pattern where he would go to bed at nine o'clock. This is before we met <laughs> or before we got married. Sorry. <laughs> and then he would tell me I would need to go to bed at nine and then wake up at a certain time. He would need his eight hour sleep for me three hours of sleep sometimes is okay. Five hours of sleep sometimes is okay. Six hours. It depends. And I still feel good. It's just, I I can see what you're talking about. Like people are like thinking about, oh, I must get this much sleep. And that's what probably prevents them from sleeping well because they're thinking about it and their mind is just thinking, thinking, thinking. Um, yeah. So I used to suffer a lot from insomnia and that's because I was drinking so much, <laughs> thinking that it was actually going to help me sleep. And so I notice a lot of people tend to go to sleep aids. They'll go ahead and drink. Why do you think people gravitate towards sleep aids? And what are some potential dangers or drawbacks that you've noticed from taking it for prolonged periods? Yeah, well, I have personal experience taking sleep aids. So I was dependent on Ambien for eight years. 
And here's, here's why I think they're prescribed so often. It's because if somebody's having trouble sleeping, their most typical action is to go to their primary care doctor. The primary care doctor, being well-meaning as they are, typically has about two hours of sleep science behind his or her belt. And because they're really not well-versed in how to deal with sleep issues, they will quite often pull out their prescription pad and write a prescription for a sleep aid. And that's not always bad because sometimes there's a, a crisis situation, there's a death or a divorce, and somebody does need a pill to get them to sleep. But the problem with um, the way a lot of doctors prescribe sleeping medications is that they don't build in any kind of exit strategy for the patient. They don't say, okay, you're going to be taking, you know, this pill for this many or this many weeks for four weeks or whatever. Um, what they tend to do is give them like a re refill after refill. And I've had several clients, unfortunately, be um, dependent on Ambien for 10, 20 years because their doctor never gave them that exit strategy and just kept them on it, which is really unfortunate. And I can speak for myself when I was dependent on Ambien, you know, it did actually work for me in terms of like, it got me to sleep more quickly because it was usually taking like two hours for me to fall asleep. But the problem was I was incredibly groggy the next day. I really didn't feel like I was actually awake till close to noon. And it did start to create problems with my job because I was in a position where I had to like write on the spot, like write a press release or whatever. And I remember just, there were times when they were like, okay, write this in 10 minutes or whatever. And I was just frozen at my keyboard and they were like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got the residual grogginess. And as I've become more versed in sleep, I discovered that 80% of people have next day side effects from sleeping pills, such as grogginess, trouble waking up, um, foggy headedness. Um, so there are you know quite a few issues with them. And um, I hope that answered the question. I kind of went on a tangent. Yeah, but no, but I, I love tangents. <laughs> I love tangents, by the way. So I'm all good with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could really talk on that topic for a long time, but um, you know, I think that you know, the the main takeaway is they do have their place, but we have to be um, cognizant of how long we take them because the package insert on in the pills does say they're meant for short-term use up to four weeks. So we we really need to be mindful about how they're used. Yeah. I've heard some horror stories before where they just don't even remember walking around, you know, and uh, after they've taken some type of sleep aid and they're just walking around the house and like a zombie or something that people have been telling me, told me this in the past. I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, I actually had several instances where I ate after I took the pills and, you know, wasn't hundred percent aware of eating. Um, people will get in the car and drive people will do dangerous things. And they ended up putting a black box warning on this class of sleeping pills in 2019 um, because of this reason, because so many people were hurting themselves and others. So it's really, I mean, it, you know, we sometimes, you know, we sometimes kind of laugh it off because, you know, eating is not like a huge hazard or, you know, shopping on the internet, like when you're not aware is, you know, not ideal, but it's not really that harmful. But like when you get behind the wheel of a car, that yeah. could be hurting really yourself or another person. So, right. Yeah. And what are some natural alternatives that you would suggest? 
Well, there are, you know, there are a lot of um, supplements out there, but it, you know, it, it's really kind of an individual thing. Like some, some work for some people, some don't, and there are just so many on the market, but you know, in reality, if you do have insomnia supplements, don't really have a lot of um, evidence behind them as far as efficacy in getting rid of the insomnia. There really needs to be um, more substantive tools. Like for example, CBTI, it's a tool that I work with um, is more helpful for insomnia. But if you're just having um, occasional sleeping issues, then I don't see any issue at all with getting a sleep supplement. I mean, there's like magnesium, which I don't really consider a sleep supplement. I kind of consider that more of like a wellness supplement. Um, there's L-theanine, GABA, um, valerian root. Um, sometimes people take melatonin. The data is, you know, still out on that. That's really more used for circadian rhythm issues. Um, but speaking of melatonin, um, you do need to be careful about the sourcing of it because uh, what they found is in a study that they looked at the shelves, that they pulled bottles up from the shelves um, and they found that there were certain melatonin products that had either more or less melatonin in them, which could be potentially an issue because if you have a lot of melatonin in your system, it could produce next day grogginess. So you have to really be careful, not just with melatonin supplements, but with some supplements all around and just make sure they're from a better source. Like I wouldn't recommend the Costco brand, not to trash Costco, but just the big box stores, you know, they yeah. typically don't have the best ingredients um, and the best quality. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I see clear from that, that section. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. no, thank you. <laughs> now, um, now we hear a lot about screens, right? <laughs> screens disrupting yeah. our sleep. Can you actually talk a little bit about this topic? Because I am guilty sometimes looking at my phone. Um, I stopped watching TV before bed, which is a good thing because I used to watch like the news before I went to bed. What was wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> nightmares, nightmares all night. <laughs> yeah. Um, are screens truly the primary villain, or do you, or is there more to the story? Do you think there's more to the story? So there's it's a nuanced topic. So my take on screens is that, and there's some data that came out recently that kind of backs this up. Um, the, the blue light on screens is not as impactful on our sleep as we once thought. Um, I do though typically recommend or you know suggest to people that they might wanna try blue blocking glasses if they're gonna be on screens at night. But what I think is just as important as the blue screen is the content that you're watching. So you, you mentioned watching the news before bed that's a, a perfect example of content that's too stimulating or scary or thought provoking that could negatively impact your sleep. Um, people are often shocked, Gina, to find out that I, as a sleep coach, watch TV every night as my evening wind down routine. Um, but here's, here's how I do it without it ruining my sleep. So number one, I watch it on a regular TV that's fairly far from me. I do have some extra protection with the blue blocking glasses. And I also choose content that is not stimulating. So a comedy, um, a cooking show or something that's very light. And you kind of know that there's not going to be like something violent or scary. So I do think um, there's also this concept of passive versus, versus active media. So we want to maybe back off on the active media. And that would be things like social media, 
um, gaming, those would be active because and, and texting as well, um, because you're going back and forth, potentially engaging. Whereas the passive is like TV or a meditation or breathwork app. So we just really have to be cognizant of what we're using the screens for and the intention behind it, I think more than the actual blue light itself. That makes total sense because I was, so I have a game called Bubble Witch on my phone. And one night I was in, I was like kind of restless. I don't know, my muscles were hurting. I was kind of like, I'm like, let me see if I can just play a game. (laughs) I was playing a game, but I swear when I was done with the game and I put it away and it was, it was dark, but I was closing my eyes I literally can see the game still playing in my head. I'm like, oh, that was not a good idea. (laughs) Why did you do this to yourself? And all I can see are those blue bubbles and those red bubbles and those little owls that we have to um, help escape. (laughs) But anyway, yeah. So, but then when I go ahead and put like some healing frequency on when I'm trying to do maybe some breath work, like using those apps that are beneficial, I sleep good. So I totally yeah. agree with what you're saying. I've experienced both sides. Yes. Now, apart from the screens, are there any other like technological devices or habits that might be compromising to our sleep quality? Um, I think those probably are the, the main ones as far as like technology. Um, I mean, there's some, you know, there's some other pro- habits that people get into that are not great for their sleep. I mean, alcohol, we can delve into that. Um, eating too late. Um, potentially exercising too late and too hard could be all be disrupting our sleep. So, you know, there, there are lots and lots of reasons that our sleep can, can get disrupted. But um, I think that definitely, you know, getting, I think there's this term called revenge bedtime procrastination. Have you heard of this term before? No, I haven't. So it's, it, it can be an issue with people. So essentially what this is, it's when people, kind of binge, uh, or maybe shows at night, or they get engaged with like texting or what social media or whatever, because they feel like they've gone all day without any time for themselves. And now that the kids are in bed or they have free time, they're like, this is my time and I'm going to do whatever the heck I want with it. And so what they, what they end up doing is they kind of override their own prescribed bedtime. They override their own sleepiness cues and keep engaging until, it's, you know, midnight, one o'clock and they're, they, it's like, they know better, but there's, they're just sort of like their inner teenage rebel is, is, is at the wheel. Right. So that, that tends to be a problem with a lot of people, um, as far as like disrupting their sleep and, and, um, you know, making them feel bad the next day, (laughs) (laughs) they don't feel well the next day after that. I know here you're thinking you have like a time for yourself, but then you do get distracted with social media and different things that you're doing <laughs> at night. But is is there anything that we should be including in our nighttime routine? You know, the nighttime routine is something that I think is incredibly personal. Um, I actually have a free mini course on evening and morning routines so that people can check out. But, you know, I think that what you really just need to find is something that is calm, pleasant and relaxing for you. And that really varies from person to person. But you know, some examples of things that work for a lot of people, not everybody, but like reading, meditating, breath work, stretching, um, crafts, you know, talking to your partner or um, but then, you know, with the talking with your partner thing, there needs to be a little bit of a caveat to that because <laughs> I've had several clients report back to me that 
they had like a, an altercation, not a physical altercation, but just like a, a verbal altercation <laughs> with, their, with their partner before bed because they were talking about issues that were heated. So if you're going to talk to your partner, I would suggest maybe, you know, keeping it light, keeping it like, you know, how was your day? Um, what, what are a few things you were grateful for today? You know, keeping it really positive and not to say that you shouldn't delve into the serious issues with your partner, but like maybe table those for uh, much earlier in the day or in the morning, um, so that you can prevent any kind of, um, you know, discord before bed. That's, that can impact your sleep. We, you know, it's hard to sleep when you're, um, when you're emotionally riled up for sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure, for sure. Yeah, you don't want to be all angry at each other and try to sleep. One's going to be on the couch then, I think. And then they won't get good sleep because their back's going to be hitting the next Right, exactly. (laughs) Now, um, speaking of like quality versus quantity, you know, there's that debate. Should I, it's it's the quality of sleep that I get versus how long I sleep. How much sleep should we be aiming for? I mean, I know you talked about the everybody's different. But for your personal experience, so how much hours of sleep do you get? And why would quality be more significant? Yeah, well, I think quality wins out in the race um, over quantity. I would rather much see, I would rather see my client get six and a half hours of quality sleep than eight hours of broken sleep. And there's actually some new research that recently came out where they looked at thousands of thousands of people in a retrospective cohort study. And they found that people who got six hours of sleep a night, um, that was regular sleep, consistent sleep, had actual longer lifespans than people who got eight hours of interrupted sleep. So that shows that potentially we could, you know, have a little bit less sleep than maybe we were told, but as long as we're getting it on a consistent basis um, and the sleep is not, not very interrupted, that could potentially be, you know, better. Um, personally, I find that my sweet spot for sleep is about seven and a half hours. Um, you know, it's funny because I've, we've, we talked earlier about the eight hour myth. I tell you, I, I might sleep for eight hours once every month or two, my body just doesn't produce eight hours of sleep and it's okay. You know, I, cause I feel really, really good on seven hours maybe seven and a half is probably better, but you know, I am in perimenopause. So I'm starting to see the, the sleep become a little bit more disrupted, which, you know, is definitely quite common with women, you know, in midlife. So I know, right. And for me, I always have to go up and get pee (laughs) at least three times in the middle of the night. I'm like, what's going on? I didn't drink that much water in the evening time, but I don't know, like my body's changing too. So it's like, It does. We have to go through like the different cycles, I guess, but it's part of life, I guess. Yes. But what are the different stages of sleep? Yeah. So um, there are four stages. So at stage one is right as you're kind of going to sleep. It's that trans- transition phase. It's probably about five or 10 minutes. And then there's stage two, which is our light sleep. And that's about half of our night. Um, and then stage three is our deep sleep. And that's typically about 20% of our night, that's really the stage where we notice that we have more bodily repair. That's where um, our brain kind of does the cleansing. We have something called the glymphatic system in our brain. It's sort of like a car wash Mm -hmm. and it's sort of wringing out the toxins. And so you'll see 
human growth hormone be human growth hormone be excreted during deep sleep. So that's a really reparative stage. And then REM sleep is about 25% of our sleep. And that is usually the time that we're dreaming, we're doing some emotional um, consolidation um, or emotional repair, memory consolidation. Um, so those are the stages of sleep. And then like we pretty much get most of our deep sleep in the first third of the night and then most of our REM sleep in the second half of the night generally. So that's why often we, when we wake up, we remember our dreams because we have just been woke, awoken from our REM stage. Wow, I know. Where do we go in our dreams? I feel like I'm going <laughs> off into different places. I'm like, yeah. I don't want to be here. Oh, this is pretty cool. Like I'm on <laughs> these adventures. It's crazy dreams that I get, but they're fun. I used to have a lot of nightmares when I was drinking, <laughs> but oh. now my dreams are so much more fun and they're adventurous. And I, uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm in control of everything and I don't die. Oh, good. <laughs> I get shot at. I just crazy. like, like, it's weird. Like I'm in war. I mean, but it's kind of like a fun thing. Like, cause I like adventurous stuff, but I, it's like someone would try to kill me, but they can't. I'm like, yeah, I just, I feel like a, in a video game or something. It's kind of cool. <laughs> anyway. And I remember my dreams a lot too, oh. but back to the drinking though, because I was drinking heavily for many, many years. And of course I wanted to make sure that, I wanted to sleep. So what would I do? I would drink more. <laughs> That's going to just help yeah. make me pass out or whatever. Now, can you actually explain a little bit how alcohol consumption affect our quality of sleep? Yeah. So alcohol is the most commonly used sleep aid, and it does actually help us get to sleep a little sooner because we're sedated. However, um, our REM stage, which I just mentioned is a very important stage, that first part of REM gets... Um, shut off really in the first part of the night, we do get a little bit more deep sleep, but then um, we have something called REM, re REM rebound. So that's sort of towards the end of the night, we kind of get more REM sleep, but our sleep becomes more fragmented. And you'll find that like, that's kind of the time of the night that you start waking up the most, maybe having to pee, or it's just very disruptive. We also know that, um, that drink that alcohol can reduce our hormone secretion for growth hormone. Um, it can also reduce melatonin production. It can increase the alcohol, increase the incidence of sleep apnea episodes by 25%. And it can also disrupt your circadian rhythm. So there's really not much benefit to alcohol for sleep. And they actually did a study showing that uh, more than one drink for a woman at night could disrupt or could decrease her sleep quality by about 39%. Oh, wow. Just by over one drink. And that's, that's a lot of sleep quality to leave on the table, really. Yeah. Um, so alcohol is definitely, you know, not our friend. Um, and now if people want to still enjoy alcohol, um, I would recommend that they um, have their drink earlier in the evening, like think happy hour, not nightcap. So five o'clock you know, um, versus eight, you'll notice a difference because you really want to give yourself a full three hours to process the alcohol before you, you go to sleep. You obviously want to hydrate, um, after an alcoholic drink, um, with water. So, um, you know, it's just something that a lot of people don't quite understand. Um, and as you get older, uh, your body uh, does process it a little bit differently, especially if you're a midlife woman. You, I know a lot of my clients and me also, um, we have uh, noticed that 
our bodies just don't react well to alcohol like they like they did in their 30s. And um, at some point, women often just decide this isn't worth it. I'm just not going to drink <laughs> because my sleep is I, I really value my sleep and I want to ensure that it's as good as it can be every night. So they they make the decision to to stop drinking, which I think is great. Yeah, sleep is way more important than anything. Like I was mentioning to you earlier that sleep is my medicine. <laughs> um, wow. I remember I would, t- well, so we have a queen size bed, my husband and I, and I need, I'm the type of person who needs to like stretch. I need to stretch out and I have long arms, not so long legs, but my husband, he snores too. And I just feel like, <laughs> I don't know. I want a king size bed. Do you have any recommendations? This is just like like my own personal question to you. <laughs> any recommendations of a good mattress that we can both get good rest on without well, hurting? <laughs> I um I definitely am the kind of person who invests what I can in my sleeping environment. And my husband and I decided a couple years ago to upgrade our bed to actually a California King (laughs) because we wanted a lot of space. Plus we have a little dog who likes to kind of cuddle up with us. Um, We went ahead and got something called an Essentia mattress. And um, it's, I think probably the best mattress out there. It is quite pricey. Um, That's the downside, but it actually is, it's organic and it's made with um, foam that is processed a little bit differently than some of the other foam mattresses and the way that it um, it doesn't heat up so much. A lot of foam mattresses are hot to sleep in and the Essentia, Essentia mattress is actually a little bit more cooling than most um, and it's super comfortable. So I did a lot of research and went with that one. I, I, um, I just feel like it's important that when we pick a mattress, we really try to go for the best we can afford, Uh, potentially an organic mattress as well, because there are a lot of um, chemical compounds that could be uh, released during our sleep while we're on the mattress. And that that can definitely impact our sleep negatively. So it's just interesting because a lot of people, you know, will spend many, many thousands of dollars on like a leather sofa, which is fine, but if you really think about the fact that you're spending like seven to eight hours potentially on a mattress every night, it just, to me personally, this is my bias. It just makes more sense to invest in something that could potentially make you more comfortable while you sleep and be safer as well. Yeah. And less cranky in the morning. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Cause I notice when people don't get rest, they're just not themselves. They're just cranky or forgetful, not attentive. (laughs) You know, sleep is very important. Um, Are there any like powerful or free things everyone should be doing to improve their sleep? Yeah, I have a few really powerful tips that anyone can do. They are no charge. (laughs) So the first thing that I would do if I was trying to optimize my sleep is I would start to wake up at the same time every morning, even weekends. Okay, your body doesn't know the difference between a weekday and a weekend. And the reason why I would do this is because when you have a very specific regular wake up time, it really strengthens your circadian rhythm and gets your whole system moving in accordance um, as it should. So um, 
Now, in the event that you, you know, are out late one night at a party and it's the weekend and you're like, I really would like to sleep in, you can probably get away with about an extra hour of sleep. So sleeping in by like one hour, but any more than that, you might end up getting sleep. Um, you might end up getting social jet lag, which is sort of like regular jet, jet lag, except you haven't experienced the benefit of travel. Um, the second thing I would do for better sleep is I would go outside and get natural daylight as soon as possible after waking up without your sunglasses. That's really important. So when you are, again, another technique to help strengthen your circadian rhythm. So when you are outside and your eyes get exposed to the natural daylight, it triggers this signal in your suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is your circadian pacemaker. And what happens is any residual melatonin from the night before gets shut off. Your cortisol increases for more energy. Your serotonin increases for better mood and your melatonin production for that following night will get set up. So you only really need about 10 to 15 minutes of the natural daylight in the morning. So roughly about within an hour, you know, after the sun rises. So as soon as you can. And then I would say the third tip that I would have is exercise and exercise is good for so many different reasons, but I'm not sure how much people under people realize that it's great for sleep. They've done uh, a meta-analysis of like 13 different studies showing that it improves deep sleep. So it also improves um, sleep efficiency, time to get to sleep, sleep quality, and sleep duration. And you actually don't need to go hard with your exercise for getting sleep. The studies have all shown that even just like moderate exercise, you know, maybe five days a week for half hour can be really, really beneficial for your sleep. Yeah. I used to always like work out super hard and then try to go to sleep. That didn't work out so well. Yeah. <laughs> but I noticed when my husband and I would go on a hikes in the day, we would sleep so well <laughs> that evening and the rest of the night and wake up refreshed. But you're right about the yeah. sunlight. Yeah. When you're taking the walk in the morning time, when you wake up, if you do that, then take off your sunglasses. Don't stare at the sun, but just to have that natural sunlight. I hear that's so good for you. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. It, it's all of those three tips I have found to be the most impactful for my clients when we're working on getting them better sleep and optimized. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Now, what advice do you have for our listeners who are actually struggling with sleep issues? And then are considering to reduce their alcohol consumption to improve sleep quality. Well, I would say follow those, those tips would be great. Also getting on a regular schedule, not only with their sleep and wake, but also with meal timing is important. And just really the timing of the things that you do during the day, I think could be important for really, really strengthening your circadian rhythm, um, eating well and there's not like a magic food for sleep. If there was, we'd know it by now, but generally speaking, um, the people that seem to be doing the best with their sleep are people who are um, following like a low glycemic diet. So that would mean like a high fiber diet, minimal, minimal processed foods. They've also shown that Medi Mediterranean diets are, um, are good at giving better sleep quality. They've done several studies on that. Um, so Another thing about food though, you want to make sure that you're not eating too close to bed. So you want to allow like three full hours between your last bite of food, like at dinner and sleep. 
because your body is going to prioritize digesting over sleep. So you want to give it that really long stretch of time for your, for your food to digest. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. And if you are, you know, as far as insomnia goes, I would say that, you know, if you have acute insomnia, which is less than three months of uh, insomnia, three months or less, um, yeah, I would probably not wait too much longer to, to reach out to somebody for help. Often acute insomnia does work itself out, like, because it seems to be triggered most often by like a life situation. And if that situation resolves, then often people sleep will return to normal. But sometimes what can happen is the acute insomnia um, morphs into chronic insomnia and which is, you know, definitely an issue. And what we have, um, discovered is that if you've had insomnia for more than a year, it actually doubles your increase or your, your risk of getting depression. And I don't think a lot of people know that. So I would definitely say that if you are struggling with insomnia for a couple months, three months, don't wait years and years. I have clients who have literally struggled with insomnia for 10 to 20 years before reaching out to me. And that is way too long to be dealing with something that has a solution. Um, and they're, you know, they're unfortunately uh, not a whole lot of sleep doctors per se um, for the amount of people who have insomnia. I think there's like, uh, there's like a terrible ratio, 43,000 uh, people who have insomnia for every sleep doctor, oh, wow. uh, which is, which is outrageous um, to think. Um, and like I said, a lot of primary care doctors aren't getting adequate um, training and sleep. And sometimes it's hard to get an appointment with a sleep doctor. Um, sleep coaches can be really valuable um, as far as helping people with getting better habits. Um, sleep coaches have different skill sets. I work really more with um, CBTI, which is cognitive behavioral ther therapy for insomnia, which is really the most evidence-based treatment for insomnia. Um, and there are other sleep coaches who, you know, kind of work on uh, more on the health realm. So there's just, there are many, many options, but you have to kind of, um, you kind of have to look around um, and, and be patient sometimes if you can't find somebody who can see you right away, because there can be quite a waiting list for the doctors since there are not that many of them. Right. So they're probably, it's probably easier to get an appointment with a sleep coach than a sleep doctor, honestly. Yeah, one who's experienced insomnia, you know, and has taken those sleep aids and didn't know that it didn't work for, for her, like yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I know our listeners are inspired and they're like, you know what, I, I want to sleep finally. <laughs> How can the listeners go ahead and contact you and find you on social media, your website? Sure. Uh, my website is morganadamswellness.com. My Instagram is morganadams.wellness. I mentioned, I think before I have a free mini course to help people with their morning and evening routines to get them started. And I also have something called a sleep clarity call, which is a free 20 minute call. If people want to uh, reach out to me and share their struggle, I can provide, you know, my take on the root cause and see if we can get um, a solution, you know, for them. Yes. And they'll be so much happier once they're getting the restful sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so thank you so much, Morgan, for joining me on my show. Is there any last thoughts or words you would like to share? Well, I would say that if you have been calling yourself a terrible sleeper, I would say the first thing to do is change your verbiage really, and not use uh, damning language about your sleep and, you know, 
acknowledge the fact that you're having trouble sleeping, but use a little bit more gentler language because the more we reinforce the fact that we're quote bad sleepers, I think the longer it takes for us to turn the ship around. So right. words, words are, words are powerful. So just choose your words wisely. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Morgan. You're welcome. To my cherished listeners, from the very depths of my heart, thank you. Every single one of you who've showered me with those warm five-star reviews, your kindness shines so brightly. And if you haven't yet, know that your voice and support always matter. Your unwavering love has lifted us onto Feedspot's esteemed list of best women's sobriety podcasts, and it truly warms my heart. With immense love and care, I've created something for you. Introducing the Overcoming Challenges mini course, crafted especially with the intention to guide and support you through life's varied phases, because we all deserve gentle guidance as we navigate life's tides. Furthermore, I have two heartfelt gifts for our listener family. One is a seven-day challenge, a tender beginning for those curious about sobriety. The other, a personal sharing from my journey, a six-step blueprint towards an alcohol-free life. These are the steps I took, I embraced beyond AA and the traditional 12 steps that have nurtured my own sobriety journey. To embrace these tokens of gratitude and love, simply text GIFT, that's G-I-F-T, to 1-855-649-6196. Again, that's the word GIFT, G-I-F-T, at 1-855-649-6196. With all of my love and deepest gratitude, I cherish each and every one of you.